Surround yourself with people that may not think like you, but stay inquisitive. The more people you put around you that are inquisitive, Jesus, it takes care of a lot of your inquisitiveness yourself as well. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Jim Maroos. Jim is publisher of the Digital Banking Report, co-publisher of The Financial Brand, and host of the Banking Transformed podcast. He's been named as one of the most influential people in banking many times, is a sought-after keynote speaker, and is regularly featured in leading media such as CNBC, CNN, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, The Financial Times, and The Economist. You can find more on his work at jimmaroos.com, that's J-I-M-M-A-R-O-U-S, or just search for Jim Maroos. In this episode, Jim shares insights on defining yourself and your audience, dirty desk theory, finding experts, getting a hearts from unstructured dialogue, mutually beneficial energy transfer, the excitement of what you don't know, and far more. Keep listening to learn from Jim's great insights. Jim, awesome to have you on the show. Hey, great to be on. Throughout your career, you have been on the edge of change and seen transformation. So how do you do it, Jim? You know, it's interesting. You know, a little historical reference here is I, I started in the banking industry over 40 years ago. As a retail banker, was in management training program right out of university. And during my entire career, and I went from being a banker to selling to banks for 25 years and in the last 12 years, 13 years uh, have been focused on communicating about the banking industry. But the whole background on what I was interested in throughout my career was in trying to stay ahead of what was going on, continually learn in the process of doing what I was doing. And, and actually the, the aha moment maybe came when I was 55, which is still over a decade ago. And I was worried about becoming irrelevant. And I figured out then that the best way to not be irrelevant was to communicate to all my prospects and the universe as a whole. Here's what I see happening in banking. And here's my interpretation of that. And I started building a voice. And the voice was really about, I want to share what I know and share with everybody. But as soon as I shared it, I emptied my bucket and had to fill it again. It was a way to not only learn, but it was a way to show that I'm, I'm on the front edge of what's going on in banking. It just so happened that 14 years ago, that that was also really the beginning of social media. And I realized quickly that Twitter and, and LinkedIn really provided me the opportunity 
to broadcast that I was doing these things and very quickly gained a fairly large following back then of a blog. And I then joined a, a bigger organization that uses communication and articles. It's called the Financial Brand. And that became my platform for speaking and for sharing. And then I also bought a research company and in the last three years started a podcast. But with all pretty much the same strategy, you know, collect insights, give, give my perception on what those insights are, and distribute them. And it became a nice business model, even better with the advent of COVID because people couldn't go on the road, they couldn't sell, they couldn't do a lot of things. And so I became a resource for distribution of thought. In some cases, it was my own thought leadership and research we were doing. But a lot of times, I'm giving perception on other people's research and trying to combine it because most of the people that are my audience, retail bankers, didn't have the time to collate and combine and, and distribute and discern what was important, what wasn't. So I tried to do it for them. You know, knock on wood, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Sounds great. Well, obviously, you've uh, been on that journey of creating value from information. You know, that, that's really yeah. what the, the thriving overload is about. So when you started, when you sort of had that insight, all right, I need to learn about what's changing and uh, share that. What, what was the first step? How did you begin to do your first thought piece or perspective on what was changing? It was interesting because I, I realized very quickly I needed to narrow my field of vision. Um, retail banking or banking, let's take it, financial services is too broad. Banking was too broad. So I made it retail banking. And then my major focus is on things that impact the ultimate customer. So, for instance, if somebody reaches out to me and says, I'd like you to write about the accounting backgrounds and how financial services should do their accounting or regulations or something that doesn't impact the consumer but is more back office, I, I kind of pushed it out and said, that's not my field. I, I'm, I may know about it. I may feel comfortable about it. But at the end of the day, I need to make it so that my audience is defined and my, my information perspective is defined. Otherwise, you know, you thriving on overload, I would have been buried by overload. And, and I think that was the, probably the most important thing because initially we're afraid that, geez, I don't want to live, leave any of the marketplace out. And we see this on social media all the time, the people that retweet things on seven major topics that are sometimes related, but sometimes they're just hot topics. I mean, I, we see this all the time with things around the AI and the metaverse and whatever else. And what happens is I end up talking about things, but not defining who I am. And I want people to know, but from a perception base, when they listen to me, read me, watch me, I kind of know where Jim's going to go with this. I may not know specifically, but I want to be updated by him. But, you know, I'm not hitting a lot of targets. But the ones I'm hitting, I'm hitting pretty hard. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's, uh, as you suggest, a lot of people get a little too broad. And so it means that they can't be the real expert. But giving that, you know, really pretty tight definition there means you can really be the expert and know more than others. I just didn't have the bandwidth. I had to create content. So even though I'd be using different resources to create it, it wasn't simply I was going to rebroadcast some things that other people did. You know, I, I write two articles a day. I do two webinars a week. I do two podcasts a week. I also do virtual events and live events, and I do research reports. 
there's only so much bandwidth and I, I'm kind of at wit's end right now anyway. But the reality is if the, if the marketplace is too broad, I call it the dirty desk theory. I'll end up with a very dirty desk of thought without any real focus. And, and I want to make sure that I'm delivering for the audience that I've selected really well. And the audience may be very tightly defined. And, and a lot of that came from the tightness of, of my primary vehicle for distributing uh, content, which is a financial brand. You know, I write two articles a week, one to two articles every week, and they're focused on retail banking. I, I'd say, you know, it used, at the very beginning, I probably over-narrowed it by looking at financial marketing only for bigger banks and overseas organizations. And I expand a little bit beyond marketing. But it, and, and you've talked to about it in your book. The biggest question you have to do is, who's your audience? And how do you refine? You can't be the best at everything, as you said. You know, you, you do a much better job than I do at looking at the broad topics. But at the end of the day, if I keep on switching, I'm leaving some of my audience on the wayside. Now, I will say that on Twitter and, and LinkedIn, my number of followers as new ones gets reduced because the marketplace is only so big. On the other hand, that no longer became my motivation. My motivation was being, if I get a new follower, I'm hoping that follower is a person I just didn't know was out there, but they're 100% in my wheelhouse. Because if I have somebody that I wrote an article about space travel, and I get a, a bunch of space travel geeks, they're not going to be happy from then on because I'm not going to talk about it anymore. So, and oh, by the way, I also disappointed while they may found it entertaining, probably disappointed my regular audience as well. Yeah, no, I think you you do extremely well at that uh, that clarity and and focus, and then so which helps with engagement. So you've got obviously this steady flow of content. That content is a distillation. It's insights. It's synthesis. It's uh, you know seeing what's relevant. So what is your process on a weekly basis for being able to take find, see what's relevant and to distill and synthesize that into something to share? Well, it, it's interesting. So uh, all the organizations that I get insight from, the primary organizations, a lot of them are consultancies, some of them are actually financial institutions. When I have found a source, I keep them and I, I put them on a Google Word so that immediately upon an organization publishing something that may be of interest, I get a tickler that says it's out there. I also do the same thing on, on Twitter and LinkedIn where I put search terms in that say, let me know when something comes up of this sort. And I spend a lot less time on Twitter than I used to. And most of it now is simply is capturing what's out there. So I, I scan very quickly what people are talking about, what people have said. A report may have come out, but I'm not going to be too far behind I, at the most, I'm maybe two weeks behind something that publishes. A lot of times, I'm within immediate, almost immediate of that. Plus, we have now other writers at the financial brand that are looking at at new insights that I may have missed. So I read their stuff because even though they've written about it, I may say, geez, you know, that's a good topic. Let me see if I can't contact somebody that I know talks about this in a different voice and put them on the podcast. And it also happens the other way around. So when I do a podcast, a lot of our other writers at the financial brand said, can we take the transcript and, and write about what you're doing? So we end up with a very loose-knit group of independent contractors. But I, I think, you know, that's the key. And I, I've been lucky now, 14 years into doing it the way I'm doing now, 
to have a never ending supply of, of potential content. And then it becomes a matter of, okay, how do I winnow it down to what I need to talk about? How do I find a guess that's going to be important? You know, and, and what's interesting, what I write about, what may hit me as being very important from a writing perspective is different than what I do on a podcast perspective, because the podcast is all about people and it's finding the leaders in this space. The writing may be about a topic, you know, maybe about digital transformation. It may be about the metaverse or maybe about, you know, AI in banking as it relates to the consumer. Well, that may not have any relevance to or any reference to a specific person, but on the other hand, on the podcast, what I'm trying to do is say, who's best to talk about these subjects? What are the subjects people want to know about? Now, on the podcast, I am deluged right now. Um, I'm sure you've been in this position in times where I get a whole lot of offers from people that want to be on the podcast. Unfortunately, I uh, my Tuesday interviews are very much along. I select who I want to speak to. It's very infrequent. Somebody's reached out to me. I go, that's somebody I wanted to have. I usually have my, I have my hit list. On the other hand, on Thursdays, we do podcasts that are actually sponsored by the person I interview or by the company of the person I interview. And that gives them a great platform to still get interviews, still be on the podcast, but in a different way, in a different format. And they help to pay for the, the Tuesday guests. But, you know, as we've talked about before, my Tuesday guests, I try to find people that have name recognition either from themselves or their, their organization. I love it if they also have a great social um, influencer score. So in other words, they're heavy on social media because obviously if I interview somebody that's not only famous, but it's also very socially active, I benefit from their audience and they benefit from mine. And so it's a mutually beneficial value transfer. Absolutely. So, so on the Twitter, finding the information, do you build some Twitter lists? Yes. Um, we, we, I do searches. But we now have, uh, I have seven or eight groups of people that are people that I, I look at on social media, on Twitter, and, and they cover the same general area that I do. And we continually say, hey, can you share what I just wrote or what I just talked about or what I just found? And then I also have the same thing the other way around where I go, hey, guys, can you can you share what I just found, what talk about? So it you, you get your, your universe of of people that can feed you what's important, either from a mental state. And sometimes, I mean, there's a lot that simply is just from my background knowledge of this is happening in the marketplace. It may be about a specific company or a, a major event that's happened. And I may never write about it or, or have it in the podcast, but I can reference it. So I try to make sure that I'm not so narrowly focused on what I've talked about that I lose the perspective of, you know, we've talked about before, the looking at all the, major stations on the news networks to say, it may not be what I agree with, but I got to put it in perspective on what's important. And, and, you know, people know about my viewpoint on branches and on bank marketing, on personalization. Well, I got to take the other side of that too, because I'm not going to put all my money on myself thinking that I got it nailed. People will know which way I'm going to go on most things, but you need to continually view alternative perspectives to build a better overarching viewpoint on, what's going on in the marketplace. And so when you take those over, you know, bringing in those other perspectives, is that mainly through the conversation? So I imagine that, you know, when you read something, it's, you know, obviously you take it in some form, but if you're having a conversation with somebody that usually they can be more convincing. So is that a, a better format for 
evolving your thinking? Oh, definitely. And, and, and it's interesting because it's not only a different perspective, sometimes it's a validation of what's important. So when I started the podcast, something that came out very early in my interviews was there's a difference between financial technology companies and big tech companies and legacy banking organizations. And I said, what is this? You know, let's dig deeper. And I found that it was more, it was really around the whole thought process of leadership. What leaders were willing to embrace change and which ones are holding back from change. Now, that doesn't make one financial institution more successful than the other. Because the reality is some of the most stodgy, conservative financial institutions are extraordinarily profitable. But when I look at who's most prepared for the future, who's got that challenger mindset, it became very clear that the leaders of these organizations are really setting the tone. And the more I found that, the more I dig into that deeper and deeper so that the takeaway from people that maybe pick up four podcasts a quarter instead of 12 are going to say, you know, Jim's perspective is, you know, leadership's got to change. And, oh, by the way, we've got to invest in technology. And thirdly, oh, we, we have to do some basic things really right because organizations will fail if they don't do these things. Oh, and, and, and fourthly, it, right now, especially for, for financial institutions, you have to partner with outside providers to give you speed and scale. And you can't build it all internally. I mean, Chase is in the UK with a brand new digital bank that they didn't build. They, they had partners that helped build it for them. And it's been massively successful. Also, what, what that did is from guest to guest, from article to article, you start to build a new framework for what's changed. And obviously, the pandemic changed a lot of things, but so has digital technology. So has what people get in other industries from the way they expect things. And I try to take myself out of that picture on how I work with these technologies and kind of look at what are, or, what are organizations doing overall. I try to be on the cutting edge of this stuff, but I also, I'm, I'm one known for not being on the bleeding edge of it. So I'm, I'm gonna be more pragmatic, but that's because as you mentioned, the people I interview really help your pragmatic view because you're not gonna get all futurists. You're gonna get some people that had to do the stuff. You know, I, I get in front of people and speak and I sometimes go, guys realize, it's been 30 years since I've been in a bank as a manager of a banking process. Sometimes you don't disappoint. You do it exactly the same way that I did back in the day, and it was wrong then. On the other hand, I don't want to make it look like, I mean, I do often try to make it look like, oh, this is easy. Just do this. Well, the messiness of reality is, oh, we don't have money. Oh, we're small. And, and you, you, what you're trying to do is convince people with enthusiasm that there's a better way. And, and you know what? your book, and I didn't put it there, it's been there for a while since we had our, our podcast interview, shows that there's new ways of looking at things in every realm. And and I don't do a lot of the things that you mentioned in your book very well. I've got to do them better. I've made some changes since you shared the book with me initially. I mean, I'm no longer looking at every email that comes across my desk, which we laughed about the fact that I still did that to decide yes or no. I now have somebody looking at it before I do saying, oh, I know, I know this, no, 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 no. And they haven't been wrong yet. If sometimes you have a desire to know while there really isn't a need to know. And so that's, that's some of that, yeah. that filtering process. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits 
guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. So, so you mentioned a moment ago this wonderful phrase, building a framework, which, as you know, I think is a, a real foundation of knowledge. And so the reality is when we build a framework, a lot of that is, is mental yeah. uh, as opposed to explicit or something we draw up. But when you say building a framework, what, what does that mean to you? How do you do that? What is that process of pulling in together these pieces to, to build a framework for you? As I think about it, I was thinking about it before this discussion is, you, it, as you said, a lot of this is mentally, you just take it for granted. But number one, is it in the wheelhouse of something that's going to make a difference in the industry that I speak to? Number two, does the topic get me excited? I and mean, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in the industry that I go, okay, I'll have Bob carry it or, or John carry it. Or I'll have somebody else write about it. But I'm going to send it to them and say, this probably has some meat to it. I just don't have the energy to dig into it. There are certain sources of information that tend to be almost always killer. And I just, I go, everybody knows my team. By the way, that's mine. You know, if I don't say no to it, I don't want anybody else to cover it. And then the framework really is, you know, if I can be excited about it, I'm going to do a better job with it. I'm going to be able to write better with it. And, And then I actually expand my universe. So what happens is, let's say I find a report. I always try to find other insights that are on that topic from maybe a different perspective, or maybe they add, you know, some lists that are are really key to the illustration. So I'm not just doing a book report on research. I'm trying to give my perspective on something that's already been done and then bring in some alternative sources that reinforce this thought process or don't reinforce it if that's the case. But the, the framework is really, you know, it's, it's a step-by-step. It's, it's continually trying to narrow. It's, uh, as you've mentioned many times, you know, we aren't in a situation where I don't have enough information. It's a matter of saying, geez, what do I focus on tomorrow? And again, at the end of the day, does it interest me? Because if it doesn't interest me, it's going to show. You know, my, my producer on my podcast knows immediately how excited I was about the topic within four minutes of talking to the guest. Now, sometimes... I'll take a topic and I'm like, I cannot believe I'm doing this podcast. And all of a sudden, the guest completely surprised me. I had a guest that talked about low-code programming. I'm going like, I, I didn't even. I had the research to be able to conduct the interview. When I was done, I'm going, we, we kept it going. We have the audio recording of, it went on another 10 to 15 minutes about how people learn today and, and with low-code and, and my son's in data analytics and they're getting the learning from YouTube as opposed to traditional learning tools. And, and I was just so excited to talk about, geez, I may still not understand low code, but I understand the potential and what the power of it is, but also more importantly, how this is all going to be the way things are done going forward. So you go, okay, you know, put that in my reservoir of information. Don't know how many times you're going to use it, but you sometimes get surprised. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that's a ex- great example of how you know, there's a potential for a lot of change in how organizations work and uh, the scope of what they can do and how fast they can move, and yeah. uh, which makes me, us people need to move faster to keep up. That's real key, Ross, is that, you know, the other one of these aha moments is that you start getting more and more podcasts, you realize it's all about the speed and scale of what you can do. No longer can banks sit back and say, we're going to be developing X and we're going to have a year to develop it. We want to have X by the end of 2023. I said, what, 
ever used to do. Take those old plans and put them to the back and say, whatever you said you were going to do that you haven't yet done, you got to cut your, your lead time by three quarters. In other words, it's got to be done by the end of March. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is with partners that have already gone down this path on your behalf without you knowing it. And for any of us, how can we do more faster? I'm not quite to the point where uh, robots are going to be writing my blogs. I'm going to keep on fighting that one as long as I can because it's kind of like biting the hand that feeds me. On the other hand, I'm reading about it because I, I don't want to be in the backside not knowing about it and say, oh, geez, I'm the only human still writing. I don't know if that's going to be good or bad at the end. I, th- I think it'll be good when it's, you, when it's you writing, Jim. So there's mental, I mean, building framework. Another way of thinking about that is the mental models, the way in yeah. which you think about things. You know, and as you've expressed, you, you have pretty clarity around how you see banking, what is important, how that flows through. And, you know, as you know, the, the, my fifth chapter around synthesis, yeah. sort of the pulling together the many pieces to be able to build something which is coherent, which is congruent, this view of the world where you can have valid insights and perspectives and advice. Is there anything which you do or you think facilitates that process of that broad synthesis, building these coherent mental models that you practice? It's interesting. It's the, it's the human interaction, not the ones we do on, on Zoom. It is actually getting to be with people and ask key questions to say, am I missing a consistency or a, a pro, uh, overall thought model that I've not thought of before? And, and for the last 18 months, I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of people one-on-one. So it wasn't one-on-thousands. It wasn't zero on one, which is like talking to a screen, but actually being able to, to, to have drinks or have a meal or, or to be at a small gathering and then meet every single one of the people. And it's amazing the number of aha moments you can have when the people have a completely open, unstructured dialogue. I had a meeting a few weeks ago, and we were talking about a, a new payment product out there that... I thought, geez, everybody's going to be on the cutting edge of this. And we were the biggest banks in the country and realized nobody was planning for it. And the reason was they were waiting for the business case to be made up. And I'm, I'm, I'm all of a sudden, want to almost blur it out and go, why does this not make sense to me? Why, why is it that while I think that you all are going to be on the cutting edge of doing this, you all of a sudden have also come to being a fast follower? Well, that What's interesting from that is that's a specific example, but it's one that opened up doors to completely different examples around financial leaders maybe not doing what they're saying they're going to be doing because they have their personal opinion saying, unless that's a business case, I'm not going to move forward. You go, guys, you know, that's a luxury to have a business case figured out when you're supposed to be on the cutting edge. So it's, again, one of these things that I think the biggest change over the last three years is when human touch interactions came back because you can have open conversations. I mean, we have this right here. It's very structured. You ask a question, I give you the answer. It's like having a panel discussion. You know what I want? I want the interruptions. I want, I, you know, the being able to meet with small financial institutions and realize these guys are so ahead of the curve or meet with a large ones and go, they're still, they're saying good things but they're not really doing things. You know, I ask a couple of questions. I have a couple of triggers that, that help me understand, okay, where are you really on the learning curve? And they're, they're, they're gotcha questions. You know, some questions I ask and go, you know, how long does it take your bank to do X? And they'll give me the time period. I go, not, not, not acceptable. And it's, it's interesting. And 
it's good to be continually challenged by the things you don't know. Because if you're continually reading the things you know and you agree with, I'll be enthusiastic about it, reinforcing my perspective. But it's when you get those surprises, when you get those, those interactions, you get the smiles that are completely impromptu. There's never a time I'm still lucky. Never a time I, I meet with any number of people that there's not a moment I go, you know, put down my little notes and say, got to dig this deeper. There's a thought here that I think has legs. Again, I'm, I'm lucky in that my background in the industry has been very long. Um, it's been the same industry, but I haven't let that confine me. What it's really done is it's opened my eyes to, oh, geez, they just said something that is vastly different than the marketplace as a whole. And then, as, as you know, you meet somebody like that and it gets you excited because you go, I want to get on their boat because they're not living life as expected. And, you know, I had a saying years ago I used, which was, you know, take risk, embrace change, take risk and be willing to disrupt yourself. And I put that in both the business the corporate setting as well as the personal setting. And if you live that, you're, you're surrounding yourself with people that may not think like you, but stay inquisitive. The more people you put around you that are inquisitive, geez, it, it takes care of a lot of your inquisitiveness yourself as well. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. I think I think I'm actually experiencing that as, as a, a strong insight, reflecting exactly what you said, where... In a way, yes, I know that the conversations are the ones where the real insights come out. But when you when you say it, I think, that, well, if, as you are building your mental models, as you are thinking about things, it truly is when you have the conversations that you really that it strikes you with any power, as opposed to you know reading something or engaging in oh, another yeah. way. But it but it is about the attitude. Of course, you need to come to that with that attitude of. You know, what are the gems which I can find in our conversations and being open to be able to shift and change? So it does require the right approach, that attitude to how it is you have your conversations. But I think you're you're absolutely right that the conversations are the places where the distillation, where that synthesis happens, where it refines, where you get a better understanding of the world which you're looking at. Well, also, you have a situation where if you like insights and new thoughts, you want to surround yourself with people that continually look at things from a different perspective. They're continually learning. You know, it's amazing how many people I've gotten out of my, what I'll call inner circle, because I just feel like at some point they decided to mail it in. They, they're saying the same thing over and over again in the same way. But then you meet somebody that you don't expect to meet. And you say, I got to get in their circle. I want them in mine. I want to be in theirs. And it's interesting because if it's the right person, you're not asking for anything they don't want as well. It's, it's one of those mutually beneficial value transfers of energy. And at the end of the day, you know, what keeps you working at this time of night where you are in Australia or, or me, you know, working early in the morning to catch some of these calls, it, it's the excitement of what you don't know that may hit you. And those guests, those people, I, I – continually put on my ramp and saying, I got to hit them again. Or when I'm going to an event next week with a financial brand that we're, there's going to be a 2000 marketers and retail bankers. Now these are the best of the best because it's almost like a rah, rah rally, even though that's not what it is, but these people were born in with energy and you can't be in marketing and, and simply mail it in. Yeah. We're not looking at the, the back office accountants or not that there's anything wrong with those because there's a lot of great people in those. But I know pretty much that but everybody I'm going to meet next week 
is going to be just filled with energy. And then I'm going to London two weeks after that for an award ceremony for the best in fintech awards. I'm going like, oh, my gosh, this would be another energy transfer with a bunch of people that I know. I, I can't get enough how they learn. Yeah, fantastic. I think that phrase, uh, excitement of what you don't know, is, is a, a lot of the heart of being able to make this uh, all work. Well, it's also a way to stay young. I mean, the reality is I, I tell people, I say, you're going to know I'm dead the day you don't see a podcast on a Tuesday or don't see an article on a Monday or don't see a webinar or a uh, some other event during the week because I, I'm lucky enough that what I do, I mean, I'm very blessed. What I do, I can do anywhere at any time. You know, there, I've, I've had some writings that have gone through the night to make sure it got out by Monday. There's some deadlines I've missed. But the reality is, you know, when you have something that, if your mind stays sharp, you know, I, I, I know there's things that can impact that. It's not, it's a blessing to have it, but it, it it's continually testing what I do. And I, I look at, at COVID and I look back and go, anybody who is tired of what they were doing, tired of the job that did not take the COVID time as a way to just test the waters on things you don't know, shame on you. Because the reality is you had a lot of free time that nobody knew about. You were still doing your job. But there's a whole lot of time you could have a side gig and say, you know, I want to write and research antique cars or toys, you know, those toys that spin, you know, any kind of whatever it was. You could be the you could become the specialist on this and be the best at what that is. That was something that excited you. If nothing else, there's no reason to be bored nowadays. Overwhelmed? Overwhelmed? Yes, not bored. So fantastic, Jim. Where can people find you and your work? You know, it's interesting. Somebody said that to me the other day. They said, you know, Jim, why do you give emails or anything like that? Google Jim Maroos, M-A-R-O-U-S. You'll come across my podcast. You'll come across the writings I do for the financial brand. You'll come across the research you're doing for the digital bank report. And you'll also probably pick up a couple YouTube clips or something else I've done. But if you're in the banking industry, if you're interested in financial institutions, financial industry, you know, I, I'm a, not a bad go-to person. Um, I tell people, because nobody takes advantage of it, that if you ever reach out to me and say, can you help me find this? I may not know it, but I know who does. And, uh, you know, if somebody's trying to solve a problem in retail banking, I can certainly point them in the right direction. Um, I'm not the uh, the no end all of anything, but I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a circle of friends that uh, all have their specialties that are better than mine. That's fantastic, Jim. Thanks so much for your time and sharing your insights. I appreciate the time also. Thanks, Ross. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.